Good morning, Kevin. Friends, uh, keep your Bibles open there at Psalms is uh, the best thing that you can do right now. Uh, And let's pray as we ask God to help us as we start this new series uh, in the book of Psalms. Only only a few Psalms over the next few weeks, but um, important as we head towards Christmas and we look towards the arrival of the King. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you great thanks that you are a God who loves us so deeply that you have sent your own Son into the world as a Saviour and as our King. We pray that we would see him even more clearly today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you know how fast a sneeze travels. Bit of a, bit of a gross old photo, that one, isn't it? But there you go. Um, anyone know how fast a sneeze travels? I didn't think so. Kevin? 120 miles. Well, I'm told it's over 160 kilometres an hour, so, you know, not, not too far off. Good, good job. You can have a minty later on or something like that. Um, and, and do you know why people started saying, God bless you, when you sneeze? Hey, David, okay, people start saying, because your heart actually stops as long as it takes for you to sneeze. They thought that, that's why they did it. There you go, a bit of, bit of trivial information that means nothing this morning, actually, but it was just to get us going. Because we wanted to think about the word bless. Uh, the word bless is an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, it's a very good word, mostly used by Christians, but sometimes actually found slipping into the vocab of celebrities and even politicians at certain times. But what does it actually mean? Well, in his book, The Pleasures of God, uh, John Piper says that blessed simply means happy or fortunate. It's the word used in the Beatitudes when Jesus preaches his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are they, Jesus says. Or the Apostle Paul uses it to refer to the happiness of the person whose sins are forgiven in Romans, or the person whose conscience is clear in Romans 14. However, the way that it's used in Psalms 1 and 2 actually suggests that it has a a richer meaning than we often think of when we think of happiness. It speaks more of a a whole life flourishing, a deep-seated joy, rather than simply a feeling of happiness. And so blessed is a a good description of this person that we we read about in Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, The book of Psalms begins with an explanation of who this person is, who is truly blessed. Uh, What are they like? What does it look like to be blessed? Uh, But before we get there, um, we've just had some context with that video, which is incredibly helpful. But who is this blessed person? And I think it's worth just being clear about the context and what the book of Psalms is. Uh, now, the Psalter, as, as they often call the book of Psalms, is essentially the ancient Hebrew prayer book. We've just seen that. Uh, it's filled with songs and prayers that were used by God's people. But it's more than just a collection of poetry and prayers because, as we've seen, that the 150 individual Psalms have been collected into five sections or five books that tell the overarching story of God's promises to his people both then and now. And then as you read through the books, you see how God's plans and purposes work out through all the realities of life in this world that is opposed to God. You see the despair, but also the thrill of hope that fills God's people who trust in him. And we're only covering a few psalms, as I said, but the aim is to choose those psalms that point us to Christmas and speak of the longing and the hope and the joy that comes with the arrival of Christ 
God's promised king. And so Psalms 1 and 2 stand alone as an introduction to the, the whole book. Psalm 1, as we saw, begins with blessed is the man. And then Psalm 2 ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so these two Psalms are going to help us to see where the, the whole book of Psalms is heading and who is the person who is truly blessed. Uh, if you want, uh, the outline is on the back of your outlines there. If you want to follow along, if that's helpful to you, um, or you want to take a few notes, please do. But who is blessed? Well, notice if you've got Psalm open there, Psalm 1, uh, it is described in three ways. The blessed person is described in three ways. It is, they're described negatively in verse 1, they're described positively in verse 2, and then they're described metaphorically in verse 3. So let's just pick it up there at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There are three things the blessed person does not do. There are three expressions of solidarity with the wicked that show a progression. Notice, they walk, then stand, and then sit. That is, they gradually become entrenched in the ways of the wicked. The blessed person does not do this. They do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You know, we, we often struggle to identify who is shaping our thinking. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about who you hope is shaping your thinking, but who actually is. I mean, there's no shortage of people and organisations and circumstances that are trying to shape your thinking. I mean, the internet is... Uh, the most glorious tool for good, isn't it? But it's also one of the most dangerous, mind-shaping tools our world has ever known. Now, what effect are you allowing it to have on you? Who is actually shaping your thinking? For example, in the area of romance, what true love is really like? Who's shaping your thinking when it comes to the area of finances or, or how you treat your parents or going back to work after having children or the renovations on your home, or how you treat your work colleagues? Who actually shapes your thinking on these and so many other things? Because those who walk in the counsel of the wicked often end up standing in the way of sinners. Now, to stand in, in some ways, someone's way in Hebrew is not to get in their road, but to be entrenched in their lifestyle, which may lead you to be, in the end, sitting in the seat of scoffers. That is, you become a scoffer, well, now you're sneering and condescending towards everyone else. I mean, in, in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 24, it says this. You see it there on the screen. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. The, the, the scoffer's arrogance is, is seen most clearly in an, an inability to listen to anyone. Or, or in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7, says that the one who corrects a scoffer gets abuse. Can you ever listen to anyone else? Or are you a scoffer? Are my friends scoffers? We like being right, don't we? We don't like being wrong. And it's good to have other people join us in our scoffing as we sit in judgment upon others. This is what the blessed person is not like. Well, on the positive side, one criteria alone is necessary. Notice it there. Because the psalmist wants us to see this. Verse 2, that is, his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. And there's a, a great quote that goes like this. Uh, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Now, in light of what the, the Bible teaches, the Christian knows that you are what you think. If you think bitter and lustful thoughts, you are what you think. But the one who is blessed delights in God's law. It's the same word Torah that we saw in the, in the video. He meditates on God's law day and night. Uh, now, to meditate has this, this sense of, of muttering God's law under your breath as you go about. It, it's always working its way into your mind. And this is God's way of blessing actually all the way through the Bible. It's the command that Moses gave to Joshua right before he was to lead the people of Israel into the promised land in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Let me just read it to you. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, verse 18 and following, it was actually to be the very first task of the king of Israel. He was to write out his own copy of the law longhand so that he would know it and have it in his heart so that he might live and lead by it all the days of his life. And then we see the same thing in the New Testament, don't we? In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Christians are told to be transformed by the renewing of our minds because you are what you think. If you really are a Christian, you will have a different mind, a mind that knows and does God's word. Now, you may know that uh, a cow has four stomachs. Um, when it eats, it chews, it swallows, then it brings it back up again for another, another go, for a rerun. That's what we call chewing the cud. And then, of course, down it goes back again and then back up again for another go And once it goes through the whole process. And can I just say, here's the kind of idea, if you like, of meditating on the law of the Lord. The most urgent need of our, need of our times is to read, to reread, to meditate, to pray over, to study, to sing the truths of God's word the truths of the Psalms themselves. We must have Christians who delight in God's word. If not, can I say, the church is in grave danger of losing its way. Unfortunately, there are many examples of that. But ultimately, what you and I need to see here is that there is only one man who is fully delighted in God's word. There is only one man who is fully righteous, the man Jesus Christ. And only as we are united to him do we share in the full blessing that is promised in this psalm. And only as we see how wonderful he is will the Spirit move us to live his righteous way. And so here is the truly blessed one who is now described metaphorically in verse 3. Let me just pick it up there at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, the metaphor describes the prosperity of, of the one who delights in the law of the Lord. I mean, it's described here as a tree that is green and healthy and fruitful. 
mean, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah picks up the same metaphor in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. There's it. Have a look at it on the screen there. He says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And cursed is the one who trusts in man. That person is like a bush in a wasteland, Jeremiah says. Nothing good is coming to this person. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And so in this metaphorical world, the righteous person draws deeply from the wells of God's word. And it produces great good, all kinds of spiritual fruit that lead to great blessing. But, verse 4, the wicked are not so. Now, I think we're supposed to read it like this. For the one who delights in God's law, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Not so, the wicked. Not so. It yields its fruit in season. Not so, the wicked. Not so. Its leaf does not wither. Not so, the wicked. Not so. In all that he does, he prospers. Not so, the wicked. Not so. Rather, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Unlike the tree, they are rootless and lifeless and worthless and fruitless. Now, of course, in this fleeting world, they, the wicked might seem as though they're on top for a while. In Psalm 73, the psalmist talks about how for a while he envied the arrogant and the wicked because they always seem to get ahead and get away with it. He wondered whether he should join them. It seemed on the surface to make sense that he did, but he tells us that when he came into the temple of God, he understood their end. And we see it here in verse 5 of Psalm 1. Therefore, a separation is coming. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There are only two ways. There's no third way here. And we actually need to be absolutely clear. On the day of judgment, the wicked will not stand. They're like the waves on a beach. The wave comes in with all its power and strength and beauty, and then the wave goes out again, and you see it no more. That's the way of the wicked. And it's to the attitude and to the way of the wicked that this second part of the introduction in Psalm 2 actually takes us now. Let's just have a quick look at Psalm 2 and to where ultimate blessing is found. So Psalm 2 verse 1, let me pick it up there. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
Now you'll notice that there's already a very different feel to Psalm 2 than there was in Psalm 1, but the connections, I think, are everywhere here. I mean, the sinful scoffers of chapter 1 are now banding together in open rebellion against God and he's anointed his king. The righteous person who meditates on God's law is, is contrasted by the peoples and nations and rulers who now plot against this same God. The word plot here is, is actually exactly the same word as the Hebrew word translated as meditate in Psalm 1. And so as part of the introduction to the whole of the Psalms, chapter 2 actually introduces us here to the main characters who are going to feature right throughout the book of Psalms. So we see it in verses 1 to 3, there are God's enemies who rage against him and want to assert their independence from him. And then in verses 4 to 6, God himself speaks into their rebellion. And then in verses 7 to 9, God's king enters the scene before in the final verse, there are those who take refuge in him. These are the ones who are going to appear throughout the book of Psalms. They're the ones described as the congregation of the righteous, this, this last, those who take refuge, and the ones who will know ultimate blessing, even if the path they travel to get there will be anything but smooth. But first one starts with a good question. Why? Why do nations, peoples, rulers rage and plot and set themselves against God? Why? The God who has created them and given them life and everything else to enjoy, why would they? It's because sinful people never want God's constraints, even when they are for their good. They think that somehow they're masters of their own destiny. And so their speech is the speech of rebellion. And yet now God himself speaks back to the wicked in verse 4 and 5. See what he says? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, now I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not such a big guy. Um, and so for me at school, I try to make friends, not enemies of the big guys. Uh, it's why I hired Andy Boots, if you know Andy. Uh, it's good to have the big guys as your friends, right? You don't put them offside. But notice here, it's not just the enormity of, of a God who rules all things from his throne in the heavens that should silence his enemies, but here it's his voice. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. I mean, God's speech is a speech of terror if you've set yourself as God's enemy. Although at first glance, God's speech doesn't seem that terrifying. Look what he says. He says, in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, can I say the key here is the I. It's the God who is enthroned in heaven against every other earthly ruler who has established his king, who will rule every nation as king of kings and lord of lords. See, none of Israel's kings were ever intended to be this ruler, even though we're going to see King David and, and his others who follow in his footsteps, but none of them were, were supposed to be this king. But they do point to him. And so this is the promise that God had already made to David, Israel's greatest king, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. It's on the screen there. Where God promises to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. See, God's promise has always been to send his son to be his anointed, his king, his Messiah, who would destroy God's enemies and rule the congregation of the righteous forever. And God's day is coming. And now it's the king himself who speaks in verses 6 to 9. And and he lets us in on the moment that he was appointed as king. See what he says there in verse 6? As for me, I, or before, yeah, verse six, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you." It's God's anointed who now speaks, and, and what He tells us is what God said to Him. That is, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you." God has installed same. It's the same idea as begotten His son as His eternal King. Uh, The New Testament is is very clear in pointing out that Jesus is his name. Time and again we see Jesus declared to be the Son of God in the New Testament. But the two passages referred to in the, the daily Bible readings this week, if you read those, they're so worth it, should show you clearly. So let me just remind you of them. Acts 13, verses 32 to 33. And we bring you, this is in the New Testament, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, we see it in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, where the apostle Paul says, this is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the old holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, as Jesus uh, suffers and hangs on the cross, he doesn't look very much like the Son of God. But it's a different story when he rises from the dead. And it's not that he becomes the Son of God when he rises from the dead, but it makes it obvious that he is. It's a declaration of who he is. It's a demonstration of victory. We're not called to submit to a dead king, but the living son of God. And look at the scope of his rule here in verse 8. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He's going to rule over an international worldwide kingdom. Everything belongs to God's eternal king. And of course, all of that sounds fine until we hear about the force of his rule in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, I think we can naturally recoil when we hear God speak in this way. We need to have a right understanding of the world that we live in. That is, we need to understand verse 9 in light of the reality of verse 3. A wicked and rebellious world hell-bent on destroying God. And that's exactly what happened the first time that Jesus turned up. He was despised and rejected, suffered at the hands of sinful men and ultimately crucified by those who should have embraced him. And when the Christ 
finally comes to rule, he won't be welcomed with open arms. He comes to a God-hating, a Christ-defying world. If you're going to have a right view of God's kingdom, then you first need to have a right view of the world. We might not always see its full fury, but it's a world that hates God. And more than that, it hates God's king. And that hatred will often spill over onto God's people. But Psalm 2 is saying to us that you have to know where all of history is heading. God has promised the world to his king, and he will rule forever. The authority of Jesus is so complete that if any oppose him, he will dash them to pieces like broken pottery. I mean, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, willingly or unwillingly, all will bow. God created this world for his son, and he will rule it. See, here is where all of history is heading. This is the view of the world that actually should shape our lives. It should affect how we look at politics and the the condition of our world. We don't always understand what is happening in our world, but we know where history is headed. And because the Bible is clear that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the call comes to lay down arms in these final few verses. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now here, the the rebel rulers are given an opportunity for mercy. To kiss the son is an act of submission. To humbly bow before the rightful king's rightful rule. And this is a kiss that says, I want peace with God's king on God's terms. There is no refuge from the son. If you do not bow to Jesus, then only his wrath remains. But there is refuge in the Son. And that doesn't mean just freedom from fear and judgment. Notice that those who take refuge in him are blessed. In Psalm 1, the blessed life is the one spent meditating on God's word. And in Psalm 2, the blessed life is found in believing that God's true king rules. And so as we look forward to Christmas The Psalms actually prepare us for real life in a world that is hostile to God's king. But as we look forward, they give us hope for the future. I mean, Psalm 1 reminds us that as we meditate on the word, the word made flesh, we will live and have hope. And Psalm 2 reminds us that there is a final and sure outcome to all the raging around us where God wins in the end. Isn't that a great promise and a great certainty? Christ has been risen. 
Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we do so recognising the great joy and happiness, the great blessing of knowing your Son as our Saviour and as our King. Because, Father, in him we have nothing to fear. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have given us the certainty and the assurance of forgiveness and complete acceptance by you. In fact, Lord, we have your love beyond measure. But we do pray for a world that is lost and in rebellion against you. And we ask, Lord God, that you would continue to show mercy, that people would be sent into our world sharing the good news of Jesus so that people would hear it and turn back. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.